0: The Lord be with you. As you know, during this psalm series, we've also been gathering on Wednesday mornings for a Bible study on Zoom where we've dug more deeply into the psalm and shared with one another. Well, this week, as we were checking in with each other about how this is going and how our experience of dwelling in the psalms has been, some people shared some really encouraging things. A number of people shared that This process of dwelling in the Psalms has caused the Psalms to come alive for them. That they used to just be nice words on a page, but that they're finding them now echo into various moments of their lives. They're seeing them play out as they watch the news. They're coming alive and speaking. I really hope this has been your experience as well, because that's really the point of this whole series. This is our prayer book. psalms. These are the words given to us by God to respond back to God. Words that open us up to not just talk to God when we want something, but to wade more deeply into the current of conversation with God that is ever flowing. To do, as Paul says, to pray continuously. The psalms have a way of working themselves into us and prying us open to God's presence. They shape us into the kinds of people who can answer the God who's always speaking to us. As we continue our way through these psalms, as we continue to think about how they're shaping us and how they're opening us to pray, I hope that you will continue to join us to step deeper into this current of prayer. The psalm this week is Psalm 85. It's a psalm for such a time as this. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute, but for now, I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come and shine upon us, O Lord, that your light may reflect through us into the darkness of this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. Surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we look at this psalm together today, I want to look at three things. I want to look at a cry for help, a vision of hope, and a kingdom calling. A cry for help, a vision of hope, and a kingdom calling. First, a cry for help. It's not where the psalm begins, but that's the thrust of the psalm. Much like Psalm 126 a few weeks ago, the first three verses recount God's good work on our behalf in the past. God's salvation and restoration that has already come. And then the psalm turns. While well, it begins saying, you've been favorable to the land. You've restored our fortunes, forgiven our iniquity, pardoned our sin, withdrawn your wrath and turned from your anger. This psalm is not a psalm of thanksgiving, but a cry for help. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Help us, O God. As you have helped us in the past, we are in desperate need of restoration and reviving. Save us, O God. We don't know the setting of this psalm. We don't know when it was originally written or what it was meant to speak to. And in many ways, that's fortunate for us. Many scholars think the psalm was written after the exile, when the Israelites had returned to the land, but God's glory didn't return in the same way it had before. That they rebuilt the temple and Jerusalem, but it was a shadow of its former self. The people scraped together a living. They barely survived. God had brought them home. God had saved them, yes. God had restored them and the land. God had forgiven all their past sins. God had turned away from God's anger. But what the people realized is they were still in need of God's saving work. They found themselves again Needing to experience that salvation, again needing to ask for forgiveness from their sins, again needing God to restore them. And that setting may very well be the origin of this psalm. But because those specifics are left out of these words, we're allowed to step into them ourselves and find them echoing throughout our lives. For Christians, the most common time this psalm is is read in our worship together is in the season of Advent, in that season of waiting before Christmas, when we celebrate that in Christ God has come and has conquered sin and death and darkness forever and yet find that we are still waiting because the kingdom of God has not yet been fully established among us, fully realized and consummated. And so we still wait, we still hope, we still cry out for help in the darkness. Lord, restore us again, O God of our salvation. This psalm is a cry out of that darkness out of a broken and unjust world, out of a world of suffering and difficulty in a situation that's beyond our control and beyond our fixing. And it cries out to God who has saved us before, asking God to do it again. Not that we know anything about that though, right? This psalm is a cry for help, offered to us, for such a time as this. As we cry out in the midst of a pandemic, as we cry out in the midst of racism and injustice and polarization and division, as we witness vandalism at a Chinese restaurant in our own town, as we witness innocent lives being taken on the streets, we cry out to God for help, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you. This is a cry for help to the God who alone can save and restore us. If you want, I want to invite you to just take a couple minutes to reflect on and discuss that. How can you take up these words where do you need to cry out and join in this psalm, asking God for help? The psalm isn't just a cry for help, though. It also offers to us a vision of hope. As it turns after verse 7, the psalm shifts again. And it shifts from we to me. And a solitary voice seems to stand up in the midst of the crowd, the congregation who's been praying these words together, and offer a vision of hope for the whole congregation. And with these words, they raise the eyes of the people above their current sorrows and fix them on what they believe firmly that God will do. The imagination of the people is opened up and suddenly filled with this grand vision of hope, and the people of God are sustained because of it. But what exactly is that vision of hope? Well, you can look yourself, verses 8 through 13, but it centers really in verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet, righteousness and peace. Will kiss each other. It's a provocative image. And if you've ever read or seen Babette's Feast, that whole short story and then movie is seeking to understand what these words mean when they're placed together here in Psalm 85. So, what do those words mean? Well, each of those four are are really important and loaded words in the Bible. So let's look at each one individually and then put them together. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. You've got to get in the back of your throat. Chesed, chesed. It's God's steadfast love, yes, but, but also mercy. It refers specifically to God's dogged determination to be faithful to the covenant when we aren't. See, God and God's people had entered into this covenant together, a contractual relationship, and each side had things they were responsible for to maintain that relationship. And throughout Israel's history, God was always faithful. Israel was almost never faithful. They were the cheating spouse that left and went around with other gods and other peoples that never really kept God's ways And that nullified that covenant. And God could have walked away and abandoned them forever. Chesed refers to God's steadfast love, God's mercy, God's determination and decision to be faithful to the covenant even when we were not. Chesed, God's steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Faithfulness is in Hebrew, emet, much more often translated as truth. But it's different from our conception of truth. We inherit that through the Greeks. Uh, When we think about truth, we think about language and facts, that things are true or false based on how they correlate to reality. I can tell you the sky is purple, but if you go outside and look up and it's blue, that statement is false because it doesn't match the reality we can observe together. Hebrew conception of truth is different. For them, truth is more like being who or what you are. In faith walking, there's a core value we call integrity. And integrity isn't just about being truthful. Integrity goes much deeper. Integrity shares a a Latin root with other words like integer and integrate. Integer being whole numbers, integrate being brought together into a whole. Integrity is about wholeness, about not being broken apart and divided. A bridge has integrity if it's a bridge, if it stays whole and carries you across the chasm it's supposed to carry you across. If it stays whole and is what it is, it has integrity. Integrity is not just about doing what you say you'll do, but it's about not living a divided life. It's about having no hypocrisy, no saying one thing over here and doing something different over here, no acting this way with these people and acting a different way with these people, but a whole life, truth, faithfulness, emet. The psalm says God's steadfast love, chesed, and emet, faithfulness and truth will meet. And that that righteousness, righteousness in Hebrew is tzedek. As we think of righteousness, we think of, of a lofty, objective standard to which we are measured. Not unlike the show The Good Place, where in your life, for all the good things you do, you earn points. And for all the bad things you do, you lose points. And if in the end you have enough points when you die, you get to go to the good place. And if not, you go to the bad place. That's how we often think about righteousness. But in the Jewish worldview, within the Hebrew language, righteousness has a different meaning. It's a word about relationships. Righteousness is a relational category. It's still about an ethical standard, but it's about how we treat one another. It's about the relationship that we carry on. It's about doing right by others, And that word righteousness is almost always paired in the Old Testament with another word, justice, mishpat. Because acting with righteousness, establishing right relationships, is not just about doing so with the people we like and the people who are like us and the people who are around us, but is also about treating rightly those who are left out and left behind those who are on the margins, those who are vulnerable in society. In the Old Testament, that's the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien, the the refugee who lives among us. In our world, we can add any of a number of other people into that category. But doing righteousness is about treating them too as though they bear the image of God because they do. And so righteousness is about helping to lift them up Is about directing attention to those who are often ignored. Righteousness is this relational term. Righteousness and peace will kiss. Peace in Hebrew is shalom. And if you know any word in Hebrew, you probably know that one, shalom. Not just peace in the sense of armistice, the absence of fighting, but about wholeness and flourishing. The world as it was meant to be. In the Old Testament, the prophets would say that the lion and the lamb will lie down together. That we'll beat our swords into plows and our spears into pruning hooks. Because it's not just that we aren't using them now. It's that we will never need them again. So we don't need to stockpile arms in case we will need them in the future. Because there's no hostility. Things are as they were meant to be in harmony and in flourishing forever all of creation. God's steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. God's righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Can you imagine what that might look like? A world where these four things are true. Can you picture it? If you can, what you're picturing is the kingdom of God. Is heaven and earth meeting together? And this is what God is doing in the world. It's a powerful and beautiful picture that the psalmist paints. But it's worth asking can we really hope in this? Are we right to hope in this vision? Are we just delusional? Should we hope in something that seems so impossible or just give up? Well, friends, I think that our hope is justified. And I think that it's justified because there is one place in all the world where we have actually seen this lived out. There is one place where we have actually seen this enacted, where we've actually seen this happen. We've seen it in Jesus. We've seen it in his face. We've watched as it spread out on the ground on which he walked. As it rained down upon all with whom he came into contact. We've seen the kingdom of God in the face of Jesus. And it is a vision of hope that can sustain us through even the darkest of days. We've seen in Jesus how the steadfast love of God is fulfilled as he goes up upon the cross. Where he bears the punishment we deserve for breaking that covenant. And also fulfills finally the righteousness and faithfulness to the covenant that we could never muster. We see in God's steadfast love, God's mercy, how he bears all of that for us. We see his truth played out in his life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in him where we see truth finally lived out. For he is the fully human one, the one who is united to God and shows us who we are to be and how we are to be. We see in Him righteousness, the perfect right relationship with God and with all those whom He ever encountered. And we see in Him too, shalom. He's the one who announces, after all, after the resurrection, every time He meets His followers, peace be with you. And those words are charged with all the meaning of shalom. Flourishing, abundance, healing, and restoration that pour out of Him upon all who even touch Him. This week in Bible study, as we talked about these four things, one of you said, Well, you know, the cross has four points. And it seems that it's there that steadfast love and faithfulness meet. That righteousness and peace kiss each other all in the center, in the middle of the cross where Jesus Christ himself gives himself for us. What a vision. This is the vision of hope that Psalm 85 holds out for us in the midst of a broken world. These words, yes, are a cry for help, but they're also this vision of hope of a day surely coming when God's mercy And truth, righteousness, and shalom meet one another. And when Christ returns again, they spring up from the ground and pour down from the heavens until they fill everything. I want to invite you again to take a moment to discuss or just to wonder about what that vision of hope looks like for you and about how these things come together in Jesus. The last thing I wanted to talk about was a kingdom calling. We heard the cry for help. We joined in. We saw the vision of hope and we placed our hearts in it. And now there's a kingdom calling. This psalm essentially says, Lord, bring heaven to earth. It's asking God to restore all things, to make all things right again. It's asking God to do what God said God would do. And what we believe God is going to do shapes how we live in the meantime. This winter, a group of us joined together to study N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, to look into the scriptures and think about what our hope actually is. And what we found is that the hope scripture lays out for us is not that we will escape this earth and that our spirits will finally be set free from it to go somewhere else to spend eternity with God. What we found was that God is entering into creation, that God is working to restore and redeem and remake all things, and that one day God will bring heaven to earth and will dwell with us here as we are physically resurrected for all of eternity. And that impacts how we will live. Because if you think we're just going to be rescued out of this broken place to live as spirits somewhere else forever, then what happens around here doesn't really matter. We're just waiting for our boat to leave. So the injustice and disrepair of the world around us shouldn't really matter to us that much. But if we believe God is doing this, what Psalm 85 lays out for us, that the kingdom of God is going to be here, that heaven is going to come to earth, then we'll find ourselves joined up into the work of God. One of the the best 20th century missiologists, which is a term for people who study mission, was a man named Leslie Newbegin. He spent much of his life as a missionary in India, but later in life came home to the UK and found that this too was a context for mission. That the church needed to reshape itself to realize that its own communities were now territories for mission. And in some of his writings, he would say that the church's role is to be a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the kingdom and reign of God. A sign that it points outside of itself to what God is doing in the world an instrument that it is to be used by God to establish this kingdom within the world and a foretaste that as people look at us, not just in our worship, not just in how we treat each other, but how we we inhabit the whole world around us, that that is to be a foretaste of the kingdom and reign of God, of the day when heaven comes, of the day when steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace, kiss. That the church is supposed to live this out, not just wait around. Friends, this psalm is is a cry for help, a vision of hope, and a kingdom calling As we take these words up and pray them, we find not just words to pray in dark moments like this one, not just a God who hears the cries of those who need help, but we also find the hopeful vision of what God is doing around us that will lift our hearts above our natural sorrow and suffering, not to ignore it and pretend it isn't there, but to look more deeply into it unafraid, because we know what God will do with it one day. And we find ourselves here also called into that kingdom. We find ourselves joined into the work of God as signs and instruments and foretastes of this kingdom, of the day when steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. cry for help a vision of hope and a kingdom calling in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Amen